Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. Whether you're joining us online or in person today, we're delighted that you're here. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the daring kidnapping of one of the worst of the Holocaust masterminds, Adolf Eichmann. And during his trial in Israel, prosecutors called a string of former concentration camp prisoners as witnesses. One was a small man named Yehiel Denier, who had miraculously escaped death in Auschwitz. Denier entered the courtroom and he stared at the man in the bulletproof glass booth. The man who had murdered Denier's friends, personally executed a number of Jews, and had overseen the slaughter of millions. As the eyes of the two men met, victim and murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell silent, with no one being prepared for what happened next. Yehal Denier began to shout and sob, collapsing on the floor. Was he overcome by the horrifying memories? Could he not bear to look at the evil incarnate in Eichmann's face? No. As he later explained in a riveting interview, it was because Eichmann was not the demonic personification of evil that Denier had expected. Rather, he was an ordinary man, just like anyone else. And in that one instant, Denier came to a stunning realization that evil is part of the human condition. I was afraid about myself, Denier said. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. We're continuing in our preaching series looking at E100, the essential 100 passages from the Bible, and seeing what relevance these ancient texts have for our daily lives here in Toronto. And today we heard Dave read one of the most famous passages from the Bible that the average person on the street can probably quote a line or two from, the Ten Commandments. What's standing between us and being a murderer like Adolf Eichmann? Is it the Ten Commandments? Ten universal truths we can all agree on? This morning we're going to see that far from being universal truths, the Ten Commandments reveal for us the character of a very specific God who calls us to live in a very specific way for a specific purpose. And I'm going to use the Sixth Commandment, do not murder, to look at this because it's the commandment that I think we least think we need to worry about. Specific God, specific lifestyle, specific purpose. And whether you're spiritually searching or already a disciple of Jesus, do you want this? Specific God. So far in our E100, we've seen how God revealed God's self to the ancient Mesopotamian nomads, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that because of a famine, Jacob's descendants, now called the Israelites, fled to Egypt for food. They stayed and they multiplied. And eventually the Israelites had become slaves in Egypt, and they cried out to God for rescue. Last week, we saw Moses, one of the great figures of recorded history, enter the story of everything. Moses raised as an Egyptian prince, but an Israelite by birth, has a remarkable encounter with God in a burning bush. 
And God reveals God's name to Moses. I am who I am, the fire that needs no fuel. So that Moses could be commissioned by God to go and tell Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery. And by the time that we pick up the historical record today, Moses has had a titanic battle of strategy and will with Pharaoh. And he's triumphed leading thousands of Israelites out of slavery, the Exodus. And they're now journeying through the desert towards the land God promised to them, roughly modern-day Israel. And on that mother of all journeys, God interacts with Moses once more, mixing it up this time. It's not a burning bush, but it's atop a mountain, and gives Moses the law, the pathway for daily life, that reflects God's hopes for our lives, with the Ten Commandments making up a central part. And here we come to the specificity of God. Listen again to the very first verse, Exodus 20. Then God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, there are plenty of gods to choose from, then and now. Then, you could have chosen the gods of ancient Egypt or another tribe's local weather god. And now, you could choose the god of another faith. Don't be fooled. All the faiths are not just different ways of worshipping the same thing, and other faiths will be the first one to tell you that. Or, you could choose the gods of work, family, health, uh, wealth, and then, of course, there's the perennially popular yourself. But the God revealed last week as I am who I am, the beginning and the end, is not some local weather God or a psychological projection of our own deep insecurities and longings. No, this is the God who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt This is the God who acts in history, in people's daily lives around the world, in a way that makes a difference. Robert Jensen, an American writer, when he was asked who God was, said this, God is whoever raised Jesus Christ from the dead, having first rescued Israel from Egypt. That's who God is. And while God can be philosophically understood as I am who I am, or even scientifically understood as the fire that needs no fuel, the God I'm talking to you about today, well, that's the God who did that thing all those years ago and is the very same God working in every single one of your lives, even if you can't describe it. A specific God who calls us to a specific lifestyle. Specific lifestyle. The first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not carve for yourself any idols to worship, they take us right to the heart of this specific lifestyle God's calling us to. But before we unpack that, The line about God being a jealous God and visiting the sins of the parents on subsequent generations 
well, that can just stick in your throat. But what it means is that God will resist anything that will draw us away from love and truth. And that the natural consequences of turning away from God's loving laws, like all our disastrous choices, absolutely, absolutely it will cause damage to our children and our grandchildren. Can you spell climate change? This specific lifestyle that this specific God invites us into can be summed up as this. Don't live for idols. Idols are anything or anyone, no matter how good, who takes the place of God in our lives at the center and at the center of our psyches. Idols are anything or anyone that we turn to for ultimate purpose, security, or hope. And what can be so startling is how deceptive our idols can be, how well-dressed, how well-meaning, how silently they wrap their arms around our hearts. No one wakes up in the morning and decides they want to be addicted to cocaine or porn. And I bet most of us, we would liquidate our bank accounts like this if we believed our lives or our children's souls depended on it. That's obvious. But what about the idol of romance? The belief that if we just have that one other person who loves us, issues and all, that we'll be able to make it through life fairly unscathed. We all have them. I am not exempt. I have a certain standard of living. The idol of comfort. I'm highly productive. The idol of work and achievement. I am loved and respected by others. The idol of approval. And then, of course, the most deceptive idol of all, the one that Jesus warned us to be most on guard about, the idol of religion, of believing that if we simply obey the religious rules, all will be well with our souls. And most of these are good things, don't get me wrong, but that's how they become idols in the first place. That's how we learn to depend on them. Martin Luther pointed out that you only break the other eight commandments when you've broken the first two. Don't live for idols. You only lie, for example, when your reputation is more important than God's truth in that moment that you lied. And look at how this works when it comes to the sixth commandment. Do not murder. The one commandment we kind of want to feel good about. At the very beginning of this series, we read from the book of Genesis, which contained an extraordinary biblical insight that we're each made in the image of God. And it's an idea that we now take for granted because thankfully it's become incredibly woven into the fabric of Western society. And the biblical insight is that whenever we're looking at another human being, we are looking at a cracked old master painting. It still has a grandeur about it because we've been painted in the image of God, and though the image is worn and dirty, you can still glimpse the beauty, and you want to treat it with reverence, and you're thinking, oh, wow, I would love to see that restored. C.S. Lewis, the great literary critic, writes this, the weight 
the weight of my neighbor's glory should be laid heavily on my back. We must feel the weight of our neighbor's sacredness, of the beauty and glory that can be restored in that person. So practically, a question I need to ask myself is that after someone spent time with me, do they feel valued by me? Do they feel that I take them seriously? Or do I use people? Or worse, do I use my children's activities to feel better about myself? The sixth commandment wants me to ask, Jenny, do you give life and value to others? Or do you drain life out of them? This flies directly in the face of the idol of worshiping ourselves and putting our own priorities ahead of loving God and our neighbors. This, this lifestyle of not living for idols but living for God is specific because it leads to tangible action. Thomas Watson was an English writer in the 17th century, and he said that there are five ways to break the sixth commandment. Number one, killing with your hands, right? That's the aspect most of us feel pretty good about. But number two, killing with our minds, something Jesus specifically talked about. Number three, killing with the tongue or the tweet. Number four, killing by withholding help from someone who's perishing. And number five, by neglecting to give someone what's necessary to strengthen or preserve their life. When we withhold from someone what they need to thrive and blossom, that's a rebuff against me, says Jesus, because they have my image on them. When we tolerate casual racism, and don't take action against resurgent anti-Semitism in our city. You've made an idol of white superiority, and that is a rebuff against me, says Jesus, because all people bear my image. It's a very specific lifestyle following a specific God who puts God's image on all of humanity to feel the weight of our neighbor's glory. Murder is like an oak tree. And oak trees grow from acorns. And what does the acorn of murder start with? The idol of superiority, of arrogance. And unless we put the God who raised Jesus from the dead, having first rescued Israel from Egypt, front and center in our lives, and not the idol of Jenny Anderson, then that murderous acorn is being watered in my heart. I saw that I am capable to do this, exactly like he, Yahail Denir. A specific God, the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt, he did that thing. A specific lifestyle, living without idols, for a specific purpose. Now, we didn't read it today, but in the chapter before, what we read from Exodus, Exodus 20 was this line. Chapter 19, verse 4. It's God speaking, and God speaking to Moses. You saw how I led the people out of Egypt, how I brought you to myself. Now, if you keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And while God certainly wants to relate to us as individuals, what God is really interested in is creating a community 
a community of people who were living a distinct life, where people bear the weight of their neighbor's glory. And as you're going to read this coming week in E100, the Israelites, they eventually make it out of the desert. They make it to the promised land. And there they become the Jewish nation, sent to be a light to the whole world, out of whom would then come the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, bringing us the good news, the gospel. And it's only the gospel that has the power to crush, crush those feelings of superiority and contempt that lurk in the darkest chamber of my mind and yours. That we are all equally in need of God's forgiveness and mercy. And it's only the gospel that can strengthen us to live lives of compassion and mercy to others in this city. Because only the gospel teaches us that we are more loved than we ever dare dream. Only the gospel is able to take a community as wonderfully diverse as St. Paul's Blur Street and knit us together around this specific God calling us to lead a specific life so that we can shine as a light in the heart of downtown Toronto. Do you want to be part of that? I hope so. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and that you call each of us by name to live with you at the center of our lives. We pray that you would strengthen us by your love and your mercy to do just that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.